0: Please turn in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the book of Genesis. This morning we're going to be reading Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, and continue through chapter 9, verse 17. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter... Day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Our church currently is having an alarm problem. We have faithful servants that are doing their best to fix it, but they, so far, we've not been able to figure out how to keep the alarm from randomly going off every once in a while for no reason whatsoever. Which, of course, defeats the very purpose for which an alarm is created. Our culture also has an alarm problem. We keep receiving warnings and then nothing happens. We keep getting warnings about global catastrophes that fail to happen when they're predicted to the point that the experts are losing credibility. Now I need to preface my comments here and give a disclaimer, I am not a scientist and so therefore I'm not qualified to comment on the causes for climate change or to speak about the likelihood of any of them happening in the future, any catastrophes that may come as a result of climate change. But I am an expert in another field in theology, in biblical interpretation. And I can say that definitely, no matter what the experts determine to be true scientifically, morally and theologically, mankind certainly has Failed as stewards of creation. We have abused the creation for sinful purposes and selfish purposes. And there's effect to that sin. But going back to the experts in our culture, it has been well documented that they have made many predictions of end of life as we know it type catastrophes due to environmental changes over the last 50 years. And I'm gonna restrict myself to statements by official UN scientists and UN experts. Back in the 1970s, the UN experts said that we were in danger of ending humanity through overpopulation and through air pollution and, oddly enough, through a coming ice age. And they, there is one statement, one of their reports that they put out that said that Humanity had 10 years to avoid catastrophe, that was back in the 1970s. With the 1980s came a new challenge, and the UN experts said that humanity had 18 years, give or take, to avoid, quote, an environmental catastrophe as irreversible as any nuclear holocaust due to global warming instead of cooling. And then in 1990, another UN report said that Humanity had about five years before it reached the point of no return and humanity could do nothing to fix the problems with global warming. And then last year, the UN came out with another report that says, without swift and drastic action, that's a quote from the report, we will face catastrophic and irreversible climate changes within 10 years. They're gonna wait. At the end of 10 years, probably we'll get another prediction of another 8 to 10 years. I, again, am not making any kind of statement about climate change at all. My only point is, you keep making predictions of the end that don't come about, you lose credibility, and that's what we're facing. Back to my field of expertise, such as it is, biblical interpretation. I can assure you, without any reservation that a catastrophic end to all humanity is coming. And when it comes, it'll be swift and sudden. But based on the passage that we just read this morning, we also have another certainty based upon what God has revealed to be true, the creator of the whole universe. He said that the cycles of the creation are going to continue until that last and final day The day of judgment. In verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And I want to focus on that promise this morning and the implications it has for the church, for the plan of redemption. We've been talking about for the last few weeks, we've been Working through a series on the covenant of grace. This is the promise, the plan of redemption that God put in place in response to mankind's sin and rebellion. The covenant of grace, as we said last week, is the means by which we are saved from the wrath of God and is the means by which we are enabled to meet the requirements of a holy God who demands perfection of us. It's through the covenant of grace. And that's what all of Scripture is about. It's what ties all of Scripture together. This morning, we're going to look at the second installment of the covenant of grace. There was the covenant with Adam and Eve after they sinned and rebelled, which allowed them to continue to live and even to have hope in a coming Redeemer. But the covenant we're going to look at this morning is the covenant with Noah. Now, again, last week, what is a covenant? A covenant is a contract. It's a bond that God sovereignly creates. He initiates and sovereignly creates a contract with human beings, with sinners. And it's a bond that is created in blood always. And we'll look at that more in a moment. Blood must be shed in order for this relationship between God and his people to exist. It is the covenant of grace that enables God to say, That one core promise that ties all of Scripture together. How many times throughout Scripture do we hear God saying lovingly, graciously to his people, I will be your God, you will be my people. It is the covenant of grace that makes it possible. Well, first of all, let's look at the historical context. Where have we come from God's grace shown after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden to where we are at this point with Noah and his family? After Adam and Eve sinned, they were cursed. The creation was cursed. And they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. They are cast out of the very presence of God. They had walked with God. Now they are cast out of his presence because of their sin. But they are shown grace. God promises to put enmity between Adam and Eve and Satan, the serpent. Which is a profound act of grace because... What Adam and Eve did is they broke covenant with God by rebelling against his authority. They sided with Satan, entered into an agreement, so to speak, a contract or a covenant with Satan, and yet God says, I'm going to show grace, I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent, between you and Satan, and between your descendants and the descendants of Satan. And then they are given the promise of a coming redeemer. One who would somehow make things right. That he would defeat the destructive work of Satan. That he would crush the head of the serpent. And from this point on, as then we move to Genesis chapter 4, 5, 6, what you see in that part of God's revelation of history is that this division, this enmity between two groups, continues to play out. There are only two types of people in the eyes of a covenant God. Those who are within covenant with him and in covenant relationship with him and those who are outside the covenant. Or to put it in terms of the curse upon creation, those who are the seed of the woman and therefore the descendants of the promise or those who are the seed of the serpent, those who are in covenant with Satan who are serving him ultimately whether they acknowledge it or not. It actually begins with Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Abel presents a sacrifice to God, an animal sacrifice, a blood-shedding animal sacrifice to God. Maybe because that's how God had covered the shame and nakedness of his parents when they sinned in the garden. But he he slew an animal and he offered up the blood as a blood sacrifice to God and God accepted his worship. Cain, on the other hand, offered a vegetable, a fruit of the ground type sacrifice to God, which we don't know why. The scripture doesn't say clearly. But again, we see a a looking forward to the need for this covenant to be in blood. But God rejects the sacrifice of Cain and the worship of Cain. And Cain responds by killing Abel. And there the enmity, that God promised between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent starts to become painfully obvious. And then God appoints, and I say the word point because that's what the name Seth means. He appoints a substitute to take Abel's place as the seed of the woman. And it says in, in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, Seth and his son Enosh, in their day, it says, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's a way of speaking of true worship of God. So Seth and Enosh, in, in their day, that the, the, you see, begin to see the covenant community, the seed of the woman, the line of the promise developing. And that's what actually what chapter 5 is all about. Chapter 5 is a long genealogy. But the genealogies in Scripture are always to show us this line of promise being taken from one generation to the next. And so in chapter 5, it goes down to One man who was the great, 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 great grandson of of Seth and of Adam, his name was Lamech. And the only important thing in chapter 5 about Lamech that is pointed out is that Lamech must have been a man of faith because he named his son Rest. He named his son Noah. In the original Hebrew, that's what the name Noah means, Rest, which Shows probably that Lamech, as a man of faith, as one in the seed of the woman and the seed of the prom- line of the promise, was putting his hope that maybe his son Noah would be the one who would be the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent and to establish the rest from the curse of creation and the curse of sin. But oddly enough, even though his name was Rest in Noah's day, human- humanity became much much worse. And that's described in chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. It says there, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Wickedness, evil had taken over to such a degree that if God didn't intervene, humanity could not continue. And so God determines to destroy the world by a flood, a worldwide flood. But again, God shows grace in the midst of his judgment. In chapter 6, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Some translations put it, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is an act of God's grace. Again, God initiates covenants sovereignly. He shows grace to Noah and his family. He chooses them and sets them apart. He's told to build an ark, a very, very large boat, and to take onto that boat his wife and his three sons and their wives. And also, he's also to take, and God sent to him a pair of every known type of animal that existed at that time. And then the rains fell. For 40 days, torrential rains and the fountains of the deep are opened up and the whole surface of the earth is covered in water and all humankind is destroyed along with the other creatures of creation. Skipping over the many fascinating details about the flood, I want to go to where we picked up in chapter 8. Because this is after the flood, after the more than a year of being on the ark, 40 days of rain and then over a year of the waters receding and the ark settling in the mountains of Ararat. At the the end of chapter 8, you have Noah and his family leaving the ark for a reset, a new time, a new new covenant, but an continuation of the original covenant, an installment of the covenant of grace that we've been studying is established with Noah and his family. Look at the first thing that Noah does in verse 20. He builds an altar. God had chosen him by grace. He had spared his family, delivered them through his judgment upon the entire world, and Noah responds the way that someone who truly understands grace should respond. He builds an altar, and he offers a blood sacrifice on the altar to the Lord. That's how you respond to grace, thanksgiving and worship. And that's what Noah does. It's interesting that blood sacrifice shows up in the account of the line of promise, the covenant community of, between Adam and Noah. We don't, we don't have any instruction that God told his people that that is the way to worship him, is through a blood sacrifice. But somehow Abel knew. Somehow Noah knew. That a blood sacrifice must be shed for a sinner in order to come into the presence of God. That's the way it has always been in the history of the covenant of grace. The only way to come into the presence of God and to give thanksgiving to him and to worship him is for the blood of a substitute to be shed in your place. That's what happens here at the beginning with Noah and his family. Today, we come into the presence of God, not because of a blood sacrifice that we offer here in the sanctuary, but because of the blood sacrifice, the blood that was shed on our behalf in our place on the cross when Jesus died for us. And I want to point out an interesting parallel just to show this a little preview of what's coming. In verse 21, it says, an interesting comment, says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice. Odd comment, it's what the theologians call an anthropomorphism of of God, that he somehow smelled the the burning of the flesh of the animal sacrifice that Noah made. But there's an interesting parallel verse over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, where it says this about the sacrifice that all of these other Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to, the final sacrifice. It says this in Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, only through shed blood and God being pleased with the sacrifice of a substitute in our place. Ultimately, that substitute being Christ once for all. And so then God responds to the worship of Noah by promising to never send a flood again to destroy the world. But, The continual cycle of life, the seasons, day and night, hot and cold, spring and fall, these things would continue until the final judgment comes. As long as the earth remains, until God's purpose for the world under the curse remains, God would sustain the creation as it is. The judgment in the days of Noah was not a cure for man's sin. It was just a reset. And then God repeats in the same words that he used in Genesis 1. These are going to sound familiar. The original instructions that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse 2, he lists the beasts and the birds and the fish. And he says, Into your hand they are delivered. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, before they rebelled against God, were appointed to be stewards of God's creation, to manage God's creation under his authority. And here, Noah and his family are given that same instruction. They're being, it's being reiterated. This is how you see the covenants all fit together into one covenant of grace. He reiterates what was given originally so that we can fulfill, through the covenant of grace, what we originally were told to do in the Garden of Eden. But I want you to notice the new dark reality In the days of Noah, it says in verse two, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Wasn't like that before the fall. There was peace between man and woman and the creatures that they were to govern, to manage. But now, because of the fall, because of the curse upon creation, there would be alienation between human beings and animals. And just like how God said in the curse upon Adam that the work that Adam would do to be a steward and a manager of God's creation, that work would be frustrated and made extremely difficult because of the thorns and the the thistles and the sweat and the pain. So managing and stewarding the animal kingdom was going to be extremely difficult for man because of the result of sin, that there is the fear and the dread of the animals towards humanity. One of my most loyal friends next to my wife is my dog. He loves me dearly. I wish everybody greeted me when I walked into the room the way my dog greets me when I come home at the end of the day. To me, that is a hint of God's redeeming work. There is the fear and the dread and the alienation of the animal kingdom against mankind, but he gives us pets as just a hint of what's to come, I think. That's my speculation. I don't get that from scripture. But I praise God that he gives us a little taste of what it's like to have peace with the animal kingdom through the pets that he places in our homes. Well, what does this covenant of preservation that God puts in place with Noah? How does it add to the covenant of grace? Like I said, every we talk about covenants, there are multiple covenants in the Old Testament. But each one of them is just an installment of the one covenant of grace. And so what does the covenant with Noah add to the covenant of grace? Well, first of all, we see that there is a permission given to eat the flesh of beasts and birds and fish. Which may go a long way to explaining why they fear and dread us. It says in verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. This appears to be a new freedom given to Noah and his family that wasn't given prior to the flood. Because as verse 3 goes on to say, as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. They had eaten from the vegetation of the creation up until this point, but life in a fallen world, here's an allowance for human beings to eat the, the flesh of animals. But notice that while flesh of animals, while meat can be eaten now, with God's permission there is a prohibition added to it a prohibition against eating the blood of an animal and there's no explanation for that given here but the reason would become clearer as more revelation is given later in scripture especially in the covenant with Moses as the mediator in the laws that are given with part of that covenant you'll see that there's a reason why God didn't want people eating the blood. It says in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 and 12, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you to make, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood. In scripture, blood represents human life. And human life in the eyes of God is sacred. It's sacred because it belongs to God, but that's true of the life of all human, of all creatures. What makes human blood, what, what, which, which, what makes human blood or uh, human life sacred is that it is made in the image of God. And so when they, God gives blood to be offered as on the altar as a sacrifice, it represents human life. Animal life is sacred, but human life is made in the image of God. And the blood that is shed on the altar represents human life. It represents the hope of a sacrifice that would be sufficient to pay for the sins of a human being. So blood means life. Shed blood means death in Scripture. It's that simple. And so God says, I have given you the blood of the sacrifices as part of your worship to make atonement for your souls, to bring peace between you and God through substitutionary sacrifice. And so, while the old covenant was in place, leading towards the new covenant in Christ, the fulfillment of the covenant of grace, blood was not to be eaten by the people of God. It was to be put on the altar as a sacrifice in hopes of one who would come and bring an end to all blood sacrifice. That principle, the sanctity of human life, leads to the next new provision of the covenant of preservation, the covenant with Noah. And that's severe accountability for murder. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9. God says to Noah, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. You see that same principle working out, but here it's applied to what we call capital punishment or the death penalty. Notice that the authority to shed the blood of a murderer, someone who unlawfully takes another human being's life, that the punishment for that is that the, uh, uh, the authority to take that life as as a death penalty for murder is given to a human institution, to human beings. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Now, I'll be the first to say that the death penalty is a horrific thing. I've seen videos of people being taken to the electric chair or to some form of, of the death penalty, and it's horrific to think about, let alone watch, but it speaks to the high value of human life in the eyes of the Creator. That when we murder someone, take their life unjustly or unlawfully, we are desecrating the image of God in them. It's our high view of the sanctity of human life that leads biblical Christians to, to support two different positions that people outside of the church have a hard time understanding how we can be consistent by supporting both these positions. One is we do support the death penalty for murder. And secondly, we also support protecting the life of the unborn child in his mother's womb. Both of those positions are based ultimately on the fact that human life is made in the image of God. Yes, because we believe human beings are made in the image of God, It is just that the highest price be paid for murder, which is the taking of human life. That is why the life, from the point of conception on, is human life and is to be protected. A lot of times, it's not so much true anymore, but it used to be when people used to argue about the death penalty or capital punishment, they would say, well, you know, statistics say that the death penalty doesn't really deter murderers that people still commit murder in spite of the death penalty. doesn't matter. I don't know if that's statistically true or not. doesn't matter because that's not why we're in favor of the death penalty. It's because God's word says that human life is sacred. It's made in the image of God, and that is the just penalty for murder. What you see here, though, which is very interesting, and we'll see it develop over the course of history, is that here is the beginning. This is the seed of civil government. Later, Revelation would flesh it out, but this is the power of the sword that the Apostle Paul talks about in the New Testament. He says that the power of the sword was given to civil government in order to restrain the wickedness of mankind. When you talk about the power of the sword, well, what's the sword? Well, the sword is an instrument by which blood is shed and life is taken. And so you have in Romans 13, again, a very familiar passage, But notice the connection to that instruction about the value of human life that's given all the way back in the covenant with Noah. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse 4. He, the the civil servant, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, and an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The power of the sword is the power to shed blood in justice, to restrain wickedness. And those who serve in civil government are, in the words of Paul, God's servant for your good. Kings, presidents, advisors, legislators, Judges, police, military. They all make up an institution that God put in place to keep the world from becoming like it was before the flood in Noah's day. To restrain wickedness. An external restraint, yes. But a restraint to keep man's wickedness from going out of control and making life unlivable under the sun. Remember that back in chapter 6, I read that passage that said that one of the things that angered God most about the state of the world before the flood was that it was filled with violence. And that's what happens in anarchy. That's what happens when civil government fails to fulfill the role that God ordained for it. Might becomes right. Selfishness becomes the driving motivation of society. Pride goes unchecked. And the weak suffer while the strong grow richer and mightier. So God puts in place the power of the sword and it begins here with the power to take human life when murder occurs. It's what keeps society just and orderly and that's really important for the church as we'll see in a moment. Just keep in mind that the government has a limited purpose in the eyes of God. It is not here to meet every one of our possible needs. It is here to provide justice, to punish evildoers, and to provide order in society. It's a watchdog to be fed, not a cow to be milked, as our founding fathers used to say. That brings us to the fourth and final new provision of the covenant with Noah. No more worldwide judgment until the plan of salvation is complete. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. God says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God is going to keep the earth in something like the status quo until his purposes of redemption can be completed. Until the covenant of grace can be finished and fully fulfilled. I like Derek Kidner's commentary on this verse. He says, this promise doesn't abolish disasters, but localizes them. Yes, there are still many tragedies and natural disasters that happen, but a worldwide flood will never happen again. God will continue the seasons, day and night. These things will continue until Christ comes again. And God gives a sign of the covenant. Not all the covenants of the Old Testament have a sign that go with it, but this one does. A sign of the covenant. He says, my bow in the cloud will be a sign for you. The word bow there, we call it the rainbow, but the word in the original Hebrew here in Genesis 9 is the word for a battle bow, the bow that's used as a weapon. Some commentators speculate a little bit, and they'll say, maybe... This bow that we see in the sky, this beautiful rainbow, it's to represent God's bow that has been set down, not to be used against man until the second coming. That's possible. Some of them even take it a step further and say, the fact that it's been set down and it's not being pointed at mankind, maybe it's, that shows the fact that it's actually pointing upward towards him, and maybe that's a hint of God bringing it upon himself through his son Jesus Christ the price for our salvation i don't know if either one of those are intended certainly the text doesn't say that either one of those are intended but i will tell you this it's obvious that what god does is in the clouds of a storm you see those ominous black clouds on the horizon coming at you when you see a rainbow it's a reminder that grace is here to keep us until christ's work is completed at his second coming It's a sign of grace. The world looks at it as a sign of pride, as a sign of rebellion to God's standards, in particular, in regard to sexuality. But in scripture, it is a sign of God's grace to sinners, no matter what your sins are. So what does this covenant of preservation with Noah mean to us today? Just a few thoughts as I close. First of all, I just hope you caught the message here that what the covenant with Noah the covenant of preservation teaches us is that the redemption of Christ includes all of creation. In verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9, it says, Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you and every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. You see, the covenant of grace of which this is a part. The covenant of grace is not just about how to rescue you from eternity of suffering in hell. It's about the restoration of all creation to what God intended it to be. We will be reconciled to God. We will be made perfect in body and soul. We will walk with God. We will worship God face to face. We will live together with him and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we will live together in a new heavens, in a new earth, where the curse has been removed completely. I talked about the little hint of the coming restoration with the pets in our households. Let me read to you a prophecy from <coughs> excuse me, a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, at the beginning of the chapter, is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, the branch from David a fulfillment of the promise with the covenant of David we'll look at in a few weeks but that promise about the coming Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ as he's prophesied there in Isaiah 11 that passage ends with a description of the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes again to bring to completion the covenant of grace it says beginning in verse 6 the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, Then the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All of creation will be redeemed. It will be as good or better Than it was before the fall because of the atoning, redeeming work of Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, all of creation itself will be set free from its bondage. He also goes on to say that today, all of creation is groaning along with us as we wait for our redemption. The second point from this covenant with Noah, the preservation covenant, is just that reminder that civil government is a gift to the church. It's a gift to all humanity. We can't imagine what life would be like without God putting civil government and on the, for, as an external restraint on wickedness and the conscience as an internal restraint on wickedness in mankind. But for Christians, we need to be especially thankful for the civil government that God has ordained. The New Testament teaches us that we are to pay our taxes to support our government. We are to pray for those in authority over us. And we are to influence it towards a biblical concept of justice and order. Yes, I know that the vast majority of sinful human beings that have been placed in positions of authority in civil government have abused that authority. But God's intent for it is good. And what we see particularly in the covenant of grace is that God's intent for civil government is to restrain the power of wickedness so that the gospel can go forward. It is to enable the church, the line of promise, the seed of the woman, to be able to fulfill the great commission that Christ has given to us. Just a reminder again, what happened in the first century. Christ gave his 12 disciples the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But one of the most important means by which God made that possible was putting in place well before the fact The Roman Empire. For the first time in human civilized history, you had a strong empire government that provided for easy transportation, relatively safe transportation, the taking down of borders between countries and tribes so that in the book of Acts, the gospel could spread like wildfire through the entire Roman Empire. That's God, that's a clear example of God using the gift of civil government to further the purposes of the church proclaiming the covenant of grace available to sinners. Yes, I know that our own government does a bad job, but we're so thankful that it's there. Secondly, and thirdly, I'm sorry, the worldwide judgment is coming. It's on hold, that's what the covenant of preservation tells us, it's on hold, but it is coming. And we know that the world scoffs at the idea. But I just want to take you as a final word to 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter talks about the fact that the world scoffs at the idea that there was a worldwide flood. The world scoffs at the idea that there was a creation. The world scoffs at the idea that there was an Adam and Eve or that there was a Noah. That's okay. Let them go ahead and scoff. Because God's word is true, we can trust his revelation, and his revelation tells us that just as that worldwide flood came the first time, there is another judgment by fire this time that will cleanse the universe of all the effects of mankind's sin and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Let me close just by reading to you this passage from Second Peter chapter 3. Know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises. You have never failed to fulfill any of your promises. And we have promises for our futures that have yet to be fulfilled. And so, Lord, today we stand together and proclaim our trust and faith in you to do just as you have said. Father, thank you for enabling us to find favor in your sight, to walk by grace, to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to be cleansed in his blood, which was shed for our redemption. And Lord, thank you for placing us on this mission. We understand that you have delayed Christ coming again so that all the elect might be called in from every corner of the earth. Thank you for preserving this creation so that the gospel can reach those who are lost and desperately need to hear it. We trust in you, Lord. We look to you and we wait for that great day when we will celebrate with all of creation in your very presence. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.